Amazing. All right, hey, we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, if you've been with us, let me kind of catch up to speed. Paul just got done talking about the return of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. Paul was addressing really within that church specific concerns, what happens to those who've died before the coming of Jesus. And we even see a greater context in 2 Thessalonians where they thought maybe did we miss the return of Jesus? Are we in this period that Paul talks about or this period of the day of the Lord? Like what, what is going on? So Paul is kind of addressing some issues. Now, he almost raises more questions by bringing up, I think, the day of the Lord or meeting the Lord in the air like we looked at last week. But here's the point. The point was to comfort one another with these words. He's basically saying, we know that there will be a generation. We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There will be a generation that will meet Jesus. There will be a generation that will be alive when he comes again. And so Paul is using that as like the topic to transition here in chapter five. He says, now concerning, he's almost changing topics to something we call the day of the Lord. So we're going to talk about today the, the day of the Lord. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Maybe you've read it before in the Old Testament. There is this constant theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament mentions it at least four times, but this phrase of the day of the Lord. And so what is the day of the Lord? We want to look at this. We want to talk about this. We want to break this down. Why does it matter? Why does Paul write about this? What is he trying to produce in the heart of followers of Jesus? Why is Paul talking about the resurrection of believers, the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord? What should that do to us? What should that do to our hearts? What should that do with our, our motives and the way we live? I cannot stress this enough. The Bible has a, a huge focus on future events for the sake of saying it, it impacts the way we live in our present moment. That how we view what's next, what's ahead, impacts how you and I live today. And so we're going to talk about, in a sense, yes, the coming of Jesus and this, this wonderful thing called the day of the Lord. So I just want to kind of give you context to that. Um, and again, if you missed last week, let me just kind of let you know where we're at. We believe just throughout church history that believers have believed in this concept called the imminent return of Christ. Meaning, whether, wherever you might land really when it comes to end time events, and are you, know, are you pre-trib, pre-millennial, are you all-millennial? When it comes to some of these questions or topics, here's, what we, here's where we land. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus. That we're not going to be, like we looked at last week, the servant who said in his heart, my master delays his coming. Jesus is like, don't be like that guy. Don't be that guy. The guy who says in his heart, my master is maybe not coming right now. He's delaying his coming. Something else needs to happen or take place. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus. That we, we join in with John's prayer at the end of Revelation. He says, even so, Lord, come quickly. That's our prayer. Jesus, come quickly. And what does this usher in? And what is next? And that's where Paul, it seems with the Thessalonians, to transition to this idea of Jesus has come, believers have rose again, and now the day of the Lord is here. So we'll look at, again, what is this day of the Lord? Why don't we read the text? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. We'll just read the text, and then we'll, we'll just break it down and dive into it and just ask for the Spirit of God to, to reveal to us um, what he wanted to reveal to, reveal to the Thessalonians. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night 
or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Everyone say amen. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Again, this phrase, just as you are doing. This church has been a church that's walked worthy. They've done it well. And he's like, keep encouraging one another just as you are doing. In this Advent season, the second week of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to what we celebrate as just Christmas, just a reminder of Jesus' birth and coming. I think we're reminded again of this great arrival and coming of Jesus this hope of salvation that we have. And I, I, I just am so thankful for that. In this season, we're in First Thessalonians. He's reminding us of the arrival of Jesus, but not his birth, but his second coming. And I just want to pray and just ask God, just remind us of this. Uh, accomplish and do what it is you want us. Why don't you just bow your heads for a second, close your eyes. Even yourself, just take a second and say, Jesus, speak to me. I want to hear from you. What is it you want to do in my heart today? What is it you want to produce? Do that, Lord. Father, that is our prayer, that Jesus, you would wake us up, that we would be sober. God, you've called us children of light, children of the day, that Jesus, um, you have not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. God, thank you that we've obtained salvation through the Lord Jesus. Thank you. Father, we just want to celebrate you. We want to say thank you. In this season of just Advent, we're reminded of that salvation has come in the person of Jesus. And that salvation is still coming. And Lord, how we look forward to this promise of your arrival, this, this, even this day of the Lord. Lord, we pray that, as you just said, that we, we've escaped this. The children of light, we ask that just others, people, people who don't know you, believe in you, trust in you, that Jesus, they would believe on you today. They trust in you in this moment. That, Lord, um, you'd wake us up, truly wake us up to what matters, we ask. In just your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Ever since Jesus ascended into heaven and the angels appeared to the disciples on the Mount of Olives and said, hey, the same way he went up is the same way he's coming. You see him ascending, he's going to descend. Ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, there have been scoffers. There have been those who've made fun of this thought. There are those just throughout history who've mocked Christians saying, you really believe that Jesus is coming back to this earth? You believe that? And we're like, yes. Ever since Jesus died and rose again and walked around the disciples with them for 40 days and ascended into heaven, there's been people who've mocked that and scoffed and said, no, no, he's not coming. No. There's always been scoffers. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says this, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I don't know why I just love how he says that. Scoffers will come with scoffing. <laughs> Following their own sinful desires. This is what they'll say. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep or passed away, all of the things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're going, where is he? There's been generation after generation that have believed this and died. Where is he? 
ever since then, there's been scoffers. You know, I think about this, like, really in the last decade or so, and, and obviously for a long time, there's been scoffers, but I think about this, just what's on just TV, common movies, common media. I mean, it's crazy to me sometimes. I just catch, you kind of catch those things. How many times Christians are, like, mocked or made fun of for, like, their beliefs? And sometimes you, you got to laugh at yourselves, but sometimes you're like, oh, like, it's almost like sacrilegious. Like, it's kind of crazy. You know, I was thinking about this. I was trying to, like, research this and look this up. There's been so many movies that have come out about the end times in the last decade, and not, like, Christian movies, like, comedy movies making fun of Christians for believing in the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord. Maybe you've heard of some of these movies, and I definitely do not recommend them, but well-known actors and people. That One movie called This is the End. I think this came out in 2013. Very well-known comedians that just mocked the return of Jesus, the end times, what's next. Another movie that came out the same year was called Rapture Palooza, right? I mean, obviously, these are just to try to kind of not just mock and belittle, but I think to persuade Christians to go, do you really believe this? Another one I just called It's a Disaster. I, I only show these to, to kind of bring this up. I was actually watching, I think it's Ice Age. Uh, I think it's Ice Age with my, with my son and my daughter. And there was like one of those little animals and they're like, you know, mocking it, like holding us like, this is the end, the end draws nigh. And like, I was just laughing, like just from the, like, a young age, we mock and belittle this idea that the end is near, that Jesus is coming, that there's future judgment ahead. And I think this is brilliant. Even though it's sacrilegious, I think it's genius. Because I think if they can just continue to say, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that Jesus is coming again? Like, do you really believe there's a judgment day coming? Like, it's almost like that straw man argument of just, how, can we portray Christians as foolish? Can we portray their beliefs as ridiculous? And then Christians go, yeah, I don't know if I do believe this. Yeah, I don't know if there's going to be judgment day. I think it's, it's somewhat genius to try to persuade us from a very core belief that Jesus is coming again and that it will be judgment and Jesus will bring in righteousness, that Jesus will usher in peace. He'll usher, usher in shalom. But before that, there is the day of the Lord. Now, I bring this up because it kind of brings up a question to me, and maybe uh, this, is, this is a question I think everyone asks or try to answer in their heart in some way. It's this question of where is history going? Like, where is the world go going? What's your view of history? You know, there's a few primary views of just where history is going. There's something just simple that you probably know, the cyclical view of history. This is maybe more, it's sort of like with Greek kind of thinking and Eastern thinking, of just things are cyclical, whether it's maybe death and reincarnation in that kind of a way, or just history tends to repeat itself, and there's really no point, there's really no end point, there's no climax, there's no, like, we're trying to get to this moment, it's just cyclical, things just seem to repeat themselves. One philosopher said about this, uh, he says, if, if such a view be true, then historical existence has been deprived of its significance. What I do now and have done in pre what I do now, I have done in a previous world cycle and will do again in future world cycles. Responsibility and decision disappear, and with them, any real significance to historical life, which in fact becomes a rather grandiose natural cycle. He's saying that this is your view, it just kind of loses meaning. The, the historical significance to that, maybe your decisions behind that, you did it in a previous life, you'll do it in this life, but there's almost this maybe a cyclical view of history. There's almost this atheistic, naturalistic kind of view to history and where we're going. Somewhat similar, but not really. Uh, you could say that the atheistic, naturalism kind of view of history is, in some ways, they repeat itself, but there's really no point. We're not going anywhere. You know, like maybe, maybe we'll evolve a little bit more in some ways. Kind of can't really dream of that or think of that yet, but the idea of like, you know, we're not really going anywhere. It kind of takes away, again, like a meaningless kind of, or takes on a meaningless view of history. Uh, Richard Dawkins famously said, evolution has no long-term goal. 
There is no long distance target, no final perfection to serve as a criterion for selection. Although human vanity cherishes the absurd notion that our species is the final goal of evolution. One paleontologist said, man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Basically, we're going, no, there's no meaning, there's no value, we're not going anywhere. There's no climax to history. There's really meaninglessness in life. Now, the Christian view of just where's history going is that there is a climax to history, that there is like a goal or something we're reaching toward. One author said, the Bible reveals history to be the outworking of the purposeful plan of the sovereign creator God. Isaiah said it this way, God said, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Here's what I'm trying to get to. Uh, Where's history going? What is this leading up to? This is what people in, that study the Word of God and theology, they call the beatific vision. It's like history is moving to this moment where we will see Jesus, that Jesus will come. He will usher in righteousness. All the injustices that we've seen, he will make just. That we'll see him rule and reign. That we'll see what Jesus talks about, a separation between what we see in Matthew, that the sheep and the goats, those who actively believed in Jesus, lived out his word, and those who did not. There seems to be this, this moment in history that we're kind of going up to. And Paul has done something brilliant. He's talked about the resurrection of believers, the return of Jesus. And then he says, and then this day of the Lord is coming. And you have no need that I write to you about these seasons. Now, obviously, it brings up the question, we'll get to it. What is the day of the Lord? But as we break down 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, I want you to kind of see what Paul is kind of laying out here for us. Here's the first point. We're going to see God's judgment declared. God's people respond and God's deliverance comes. This is kind of how we're going to break down these verses. In verse 1 through 3, he's basically saying, hey, God's judgment, it's declared. The day of the Lord, people say there's peace and safety, and then sudden destruction comes. So let's read this again. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. All right, in, in the bigger context, Paul's like, Jesus will come, believers will rise again. Now, concerning the times and seasons of the day of the Lord, you have no need for me to write about you. See, the question that comes up in everyone's heart when Paul brings up end times, whether for the Thessalonians or for us, whether or not we see this in any part of Scripture, the question comes up, when? Like, when? When is this going to happen? Paul says, you have no need for me to write to you about this. Actually, you know the times and the seasons. It's not so much about when is Jesus coming, but how are you living in light of his coming? See, we, we all focus on the idea of, like, but when? Like, when is this going to happen? And there's people who, like, speculate. There's people who kind of make some audacious, crazy claims at times. I remember there's a book that came out, in, like, in the 80s, right? And it just, like, passed around for a while. It's called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988, right? Like, it's, you know, like, okay, so what happened to that book? It's crazy. Like, there's someone who really wrote up a book, and people believed it and followed it, and there's been so many claims of when. When is Jesus coming? I love how John MacArthur said it. He, he said it this way. He says, being spiritually prepared for the return of Christ does not involve date setting, clock watching, or sign seeking. God has chosen not to reveal the specific time of the end, uh, of, the end of time events so that all believers will live in constant anticipation of them. It's not so much about when, but God is just trying to produce within us a heart of anticipation. Here's what I want. As, we, as we're talking about this last week and this week, my hope and prayer has been, God, just make us a people that live expectantly. Like, I would just love for us to be people that say, you know what, Jesus, we do believe that you can come at any point, any time. That it's not going to make us weird. It's not going to make us self-righteous. It's not going to make us lazy. 
that would actually live with expectation and passion of your arrival. Mark Howell, I love how he said it. He says, an indifferent church lacks motivation and a panicked church lacks peace. However, an expectant church is filled with passion. We're not to be indifferent. We're not to get weird about this. We're not to panic about this. We should just produce within us a heart of expectation and passion. Like, yes, Jesus, come. He Paul's like, you have no need for me to write to you about this. Like, we're missing the point so often when it comes to this. I love how he says it in verse two. He says, you yourselves are fully aware, of that, uh, aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, it's probably, the emphasis is more of like how he will come. He'll come like a thief in the night, but it raises this question. Let's talk about it. What is the day of the Lord? Like, what is this? Like I said, this is only mentioned, that this phrase, the day of the Lord, four times in the New Testament, I think 19 times in the Old Testament. But what is the day of the Lord? Like, what is that? Uh, the Bible uses it maybe different, the day of God. Some call it the day of Christ. What is this day of the Lord that Paul kind of introduces after the return of Jesus? Uh, one author, I think, just summarized it really well. He says, the day of the Lord denotes the day when God intervenes in history to judge his enemies, deliver his people, and establish his kingdom. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. It seems to be more like a period of time, a season, however long that might be. But whether that involves Jesus' second coming, judgment, whether it involves just the establishing of his kingdom. It, actually, when you read the Old Testament speak of it, a lot of times it speaks of it in like the way of wrath, but it also speaks of it in a way of deliverance. The day of the Lord is mentioned several times. I'll just throw a few verses up here so you can kind of get a picture or piece of it. Uh, here's a few verses. Whale. For the day of the Lord is near. Ezekiel 30. Uh, for the day of the Lord is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. <laughs> Joel 1. For the day of the Lord is near. Uh, Obadiah 1. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. Zephaniah 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, it brings up the question like, okay, but it's been a couple thousand years since these guys wrote this. And it kind of brings up what Peter said. It's like all the fathers have passed away generation for generation. Where is the Lord? Peter would write right after that in 2 Peter 3. We'll throw the verse up here. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, Peter says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Listen, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think the emphasis is less on the one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. I, here's the emphasis. The Lord is patient toward you. The Lord is patient toward you. All these prophets saying the day of the Lord is near, the day of the Lord is near, the Lord is patient. The Lord is so patient with us. You, you and I need to understand the heart of God. The heart of God is that all should reach repentance. I think that is such a beautiful phrase. Do we know that God wants people to repent? Like, do you believe in your heart of hearts that God's like, I care more for your lost family member or friend or neighbor than you do? I desire that all should reach repentance. I desire all to know me. In Ezekiel, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, therefore turn and live. I want you to hear the heart of God. God says that again, actually, multiple times in Ezekiel. I take no pleasure, therefore turn and live. We know that God's heart is for people to not see this dreadful day. That God's heart is that we should obtain salvation, as he says in verse 9. This really is the heart of God that we are here to pursue. But the day of the Lord, it's a day where it just seems as if all of heaven and earth want to flee from it. Like Revelation 20 describes the great white throne judgment. And it says that heaven and earth flee from God's presence. It's a day where, where it, the books are opened. 
and you're either sent into everlasting life or apart from God. Here's how one author put it, F.F. Bruce. F.F. Bruce is a Greek, just legend, says, uh, the day of the Lord is an Old Testament concept. It was the day when Yahweh would vindicate his righteous cause and execute impartial judgment. This is what it is, that he's going to execute his righteous judgment in the world. This is a day where Paul talks about, but don't worry. Essentially, we'll get to that in verse 4. You're not children of darkness, you're children of light. This is not for you. You live differently in light of knowing this day is coming. You and I will carry our lives and live differently. That, that knowing the future changes how you and I live in this present moment. So here's how he, fr- he phrases it in verse 2 again. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You maybe heard that phrase many times in the scriptures, like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Um, I love how John Stott said it about this. He says, the thief gives you no warning and labor pains give you no escape. There, it gives you, there's no warning. I don't know if you've ever been like robbed. I don't know if you've ever kind of experienced that. I don't know if you've ever walked through that. I remember going to the gym one time and uh, I left my backpack kind of in a locker and then all my belongings were gone out of my backpack. And I'm like, what the heck? It just feels so weird. Like you feel violated. Like why well, I had nothing in there, like sweaty, smelly clothes. But it's really weird, right? You, did, you, had, no, you had no idea it's coming. Uh, it's, it's one of those feelings where it's very impersonal. It goes, hey, the day of the Lord, you're not expecting it. It's crazy when you think about this phrase, comes like a thief in the knife. Because it reminds us of the days of Noah. Because Noah's basically saying, hey, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And yet nobody was ready for the flood except Noah. It's the idea that, like, no, there's no way this is going to happen. Like, scoffers say, no, this is not going to happen. Where is this coming? That was, like, Noah's climate and temperament. There's no way there's going to be a flood. We've never even seen anything like this. And that's why the phrase, like, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Even though they've heard about it, it will still surprise them. It will still shock them. It'll still be an interesting thing to them. Jesus said it this way. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Jesus used the same idea or the same analogy of this thief in the night. And he says, no, no, if you know what time it's happening, you're gonna be ready for it. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, hey, but you are gonna live differently because you know about this. That, that you actually live not as children of night, but children of the day. Let's read verse four. It's the second point. God's people respond to this message. He says, verse four, But you, but you, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It's not going to happen to you that way. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, uh, the hope of salvation." I mean, this is what it's about. Like, this is to me the climax of, the, of his writing here. He's saying, you are going to live differently than the rest of the world. You're not children of night. You're children of the day. Paul is comparing and contrasting what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like not to follow Jesus. He's looking at your character. He's looking at how you live. He's looking at saying, you're children of light, you're children of the day, or you're children of darkness in your sleep. Now, before we kind of break that down, there's, I think this is really interesting. When he says you're children, or maybe your translation says son of the, your son of the day or your children of the day, uh, the idea of children or son means you carry that nature. Like, listen to this. Uh, one author says, in the Semitic language, generally to be a son of something or a child of something means to be characterized by that thing. I want you to understand you are characterized by that. You are children of light. You are children of the day. So let's just break this down. Here's the first thing. He says, you are light, not darkness, day, not night. This is what you're marked by. You're light, not darkness, you're day, not night. I love the theme throughout scriptures of light and darkness. There's almost like this theme or motif throughout scripture where a lot is communicated through lights. The Bible speaks of the word of God being a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
That the idea of light, it reveals truth. That light exposes darkness. That when light breaks in, darkness just hides. The idea of light is one saying that this is you, but this is Jesus. There was a promise that, hey, this world is very, very dark. In this Advent season, what we do is we look at the coming of Jesus, and here's what we realize. Light broke into darkness. I mean, read John chapter 1. The focus is the world was incredibly dark, and yet Jesus broke in. Like, light came in. Light entered darkness. Light broke into darkness. Isaiah prophesied that in a dark moment, light would break in. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And Isaiah 9, what I just quoted from, we all know it like as a passage, like a Christmas kind of passage, about unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Like we know it in that way. But before that, he goes, no, light will break in. Light will enter this mess. Light will enter this darkness. He goes, you are children of light. You are associated with the light. First John picks up this on this theme of light and darkness and says, if you're children of light, you will walk in the light as he is in the light. That you're not going to carry about your, your life like in darkness. Obviously, he's not, he says, you know, those who get drunk get drunk at night. It's not just saying like, okay, you can only get drunk at night. But he's trying to show like there's characteristics associated with darkness and there's characteristics associated with light. That you go, Jesus, everything's open to you. Like Hebrews 4.13 talks about just everything is naked and basically exposed to God. Like there's nothing that can hide from God. It's like light just reveals. That's what it does. And he goes, you're children of light. We know that light broke into this world. His name is Jesus. Jesus in John 8.12 says, I, he goes, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He goes, I'm this light. You'll follow me, you won't be in darkness. There's so much attached to this. You know, what I love, um, Paul recounts his, his testimony three different times in the book of Acts. When Paul gets saved, remember, he's blinded by that light, right? He sees Jesus on the road. And Paul actually recounts his testimony, there, or Luke does in the book of Acts, three different times. He kind of talks about Paul's testimony of how light broke into his darkness. And here's what I find interesting. It's actually in Acts chapter 26, we see like a different version of the story, or, or more complete version of the story. In Acts 26, uh, Luke quotes from Jesus what Jesus said to Paul that day on that road, and, and in a greater way or more at length. Here's what he says in Luke 26, verse 18. Jesus speaking. He says this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. That God's like, I want you to turn you from darkness to light. The, the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, light. You know, the Bible, again, portrays this idea of, again, light being associated with God, darkness being associated with Satan. And I love how Peter says that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. God's like, I've called you out of this. Maybe you are characterized and known for the shady things at night. Maybe that's when you, you did those things that you're ashamed of looking back, but that is no longer you. I've called you out of darkness. I've called you into my light. I want you to know this. Do you know that God's called you into his light? God's called us into his light. God's like, walk in truth. My son is light. Follow him. It's so different than how we once carried ourselves or lived. He goes, this is what you're marked by. This is what you're known by. You're children of day, not night. You're children of light, not darkness. He goes, this is different. It's different than how you once carried yourself. Peter said this way. He says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Paul's first analogy is light, not dark, day, not night. And then he says, awake, don't be asleep. 
sober, not drunk. Look at verse 6. He says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Again, here's just the last analogy, or compare and contrast. He goes, you're going to live like you're awake and not be asleep. You're going to be sober, not drunk. Children of light are awake. They're not asleep. Uh, the children of, of, of night, he goes, they're, they're drunk. That's when you get drunk at night meaning they're not alert, they're not aware, they're not on guard. The Bible makes it very clear that as you walk in the light, there'll be a different way that you do life. The way of Jesus makes you and causes you to live differently. So here's what I want to say. This is so important to me. Um, I think one of the best quotes I've ever heard about Satan and his tactics was, uh, Satan doesn't just tempt the church, he sings lullabies to the church. I want you to understand, Satan doesn't just tempt us. What does he do? He, he sings lullabies. He tries to put us asleep. I believe that Jesus is trying to wake us up. I believe that one of my sins that I commit most often is I, I sleep spiritually. I really think that the Lord tries to say, wake up. You're children of day, not of night. God has called us to be awake, not asleep. Here's the thing, church, we need to wake up to what matters. Wake up to eternity. Wake up to the, day, the realization that Jesus is coming again. He will rule and reign. And God has given us a purpose in this. We're like, yes, have a job, make money, do what you're supposed to do, but like wake up to the things of God. Be about what God is about. He's, I really believe for us as a church, we need to wake up to what matters. One of the most powerful texts of this idea of wake up, Paul took a similar theme and concept, and Paul does this, but he talks about this in Romans 13, verse 11, so clearly, I just need to read it to you because it's so powerful. In Romans 13, Verse 11, Paul says this, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Listen, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's where you say amen. He goes, wake up, put on the Lord Jesus. Now is the time. The day's coming. And this idea of the day, he's because you're children of day. You don't have to fear this. You live differently. You know that Jesus is coming again. You know he's going to establish and, and uh, place his kingdom here on this earth as it is in heaven. And he's like, you know this. So wake up to that fact. Wake up to that truth. Listen, church, again, I just want us to wake up. Charles Spurgeon wrote about this, this section of 1 Thessalonians 5. He had a sermon called Awake, Awake. And in this sermon, he gave a few different analogies of like why the church needs to wake up. And here's what he says. I thought this was so powerful. He says, a prisoner in his cell is about, is about ready to be led to execution. His heart is terrified at the thought of hanging from his neck, terrified of death, and of what awaits him after death. All the while, all the while, a man with a letter of pardon for the condemned man sits in another room and sleeps. He gives all these analogies, like imagine, imagine that the, the access to get out, to escape death, it's, this pardon is in someone's pocket, and yet he's sleeping, and this man passes away. Here's the thing, church, wake up. We have the letter of pardon. We can say, hey, your sins may be as scarlet, but Jesus will make them white as snow. We have this letter to say, wake up, world. Like, wake up. So church, wake up to the things of God. He goes, now our salvation is closer than when we first believed. That he says that Jesus, that this coming, that this is time, this day, it draws near. And so for us, it's this idea of wake up. We're children of day, not of night. And Paul ends in verse 8, and he now kind of uses this to say, so put on the armor of God. Like, wake up, put on the armor of God, like, be ready for battle. Verse 8, he says, be ready. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and a, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul's saying, wake up, put on your armor. 
Like he's, he uses these analogies a lot to say, guys, we're, we're sleeping. We're sleeping Christians. When Jesus wants to wake us up and be ready. It's this idea that are, are we ready at any point, any time? He talks about the breastplate. He talks about the helmet. Obviously, the idea is like it guards your vital organs. It guards the most important things. So you can stay alive, so you can fight. But here's what I love about armor. The idea of armor is this. Armor absorbs the wrath of the enemy. The idea of armor is like, listen, something absorbs the wrath for you, so you don't absorb the wrath. It takes the wrath. I, I want us to understand that Paul is going to introduce this idea next. He's saying, do you know that Jesus absorbed the wrath for us? that Jesus absorbed that wrath so you and I can live. Jesus bore the weight of sin, hell, and death. He took on the wrath so that you and I would not have to experience that or walk through that. He's put on this armor, put on the hope of the helmet of salvation. That is what Advent is about. It's about this hope of salvation. And he's like, put this on, live, wake up. Paul, again, uses this analogy so many different times because his point is saying, hey, if you actually are a soldier, you care about soldier things. If you're a civilian, you care about civilian things. 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul says, no one, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul's whole saying is this, listen, if you're a soldier, you care about soldier things. If you're a civilian, you care about civilian things. Wake up, you're a soldier. Wake up, put the armor of God. Wake up, live for what matters. Make the most of your life. Like, it's this idea of just saying, live for Jesus at every moment that you and I get. Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. There is, again, this theme for us at church. I don't know how to stress it. He just said, hey, you're not darkness. You're not of the night. You're of the day. You're of the light. You're, you're not drunk. You're sober. You're alert. You're ready. You're active. These are qualities and characteristics of a church that is active and awake. It's saying, yes, Lord, I'm ready. Send me. I'm going to put the armor on. I'm here. What do you want to do today? Like, I'm open and ready for what it is you have for me. You see, we obviously know about Jesus is coming, the day of the Lord, so we're going to live differently. That's his point. But you've escaped this. You're, it's not going to overtake you like a thief in the night, is what he says. It's not going to overtake you in this way. Why? Because you're ready. You're aware. You're living for this moment. And then this is what Paul ends with in verse 9 through 11. Paul, number 3, he points out this idea, and he says, God, deliverance, it comes. Verse 9, he says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I want you to hear this. He, did, he says, God did not destine or appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. He doesn't say God might deliver us from wrath. Could you imagine if Paul wrote that? What did Paul write, wrote in verse 9? For God might deliver us from wrath. Or God might not destine us or appoint us to wrath. I mean, even if you say that word might, like, might, what does that mean? Like, that'd be terrifying. It's, it's not, it's not, it's a matter of fact. He's saying, for God did not destine or appoint you to wrath. Do we know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's like, I have, I, again, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, turn and live. Like, this is the heart of God. I was talking to someone who's really, really struggling with the idea of God, their faith, heaven, hell, eternity, separation from God. Obviously, these are big questions. It's like, forever? You're separated from God forever? How, how could God do this? Like, I don't understand how God could just send someone to hell forever. Jesus makes it clear that hell was originally created for Satan and his angels. It's not originally created for us. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. C.S. Lewis talking about God says, think about it. God is infinite. God is good. God is joy. God is peace. Everything good is God. Everything good in life has come from God. He goes, so if God is all these things to reject God, what do you get? The exact opposite. It's not peace. It's not love. It's not light. It's darkness. See, to reject a God who is infinitely good and light and love and peace, 
you're going to get the exact opposite of that, which is eternal damnation, suffering, pain, misery. You see, when someone says, I don't want God, I don't want Jesus, I want nothing to do with him, they're saying, I want the exact opposite of him. Another way C.S. Lewis said it, is he said, it, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Here's how I do see it. And I, I mentioned this before. I think this is just so profound for me and my faith and just struggling with those questions. But you think about a parent talking to maybe a, a teenager who's like, mom, dad, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do whatever I want. You don't know what I mean? And they just kind of go off, right? And you think about what parents say a lot of times. A lot of times good parents will say, over my dead body, you're going to that party, right? Like, over my dead body, you're going to do that. There's almost just this like, idea of like, I love you so much. Like, over my dead body, you're going to put yourself in a terrible situation. I don't know if you had a parent who said that. Here's what I, I, I so believe just from the heart of God to us. It's like, over my dead body, you're going to hell. Over my dead body, you'll be separated from me. And that's what it is. People who are separated from God in hell forever, it's over, the, it's over God's dead body. You have to step over the dead body of Jesus to enter there. My thing is, we got to understand that God is not just passive, unkind, unloving, like whatever, you can believe, you cannot. We see a God who desperately pleads with his people to repent. I love how Paul said that in 2 Corinthians. His whole thing is, as if God were pleading through us on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's like, I want you to imagine God pleading to you right now, be reconciled to me. You see, God did not appoint us or destine us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The heart of the God is that he wants all people to reach repentance. I think the enemy portrays God sometimes as just this passive, indifferent, or whatever. If they don't believe me, I'm just going to send them to hell. You've got to see that God's like, no, no, over my dead body, they're going to go there. It changes how I view God. I go, wow, God, you care so much about me. It, it's not just a saying to you. It's true. You literally died for me, so I wouldn't have to. You know, God did not appoint, it's not might. God did not appoint us to wrath. God did not destine us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus for those who believe in him. Isn't that good news? Do you know that that's the heart of God right there? He wants you and I to obtain salvation through Jesus, and that's what happens. That's what's done. We can have eternal life and joy through Jesus. We can be with him because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, you think about this phrase, and I want to point out again one more time. God did not destine us for wrath. The question that's brought up is what wrath? The, the wrath of hell or the wrath of the day of the Lord? Because the wrath of the day of the Lord, some say, maybe he means that or maybe he means hell. I would say probably both. God did not appoint us to wrath. There's this idea that God did not appoint us to wrath, the wrath of hell. God has appointed us to the wrath, the wrath of the day of the Lord. You know, it's really interesting if you read Revelation 6, there is uh, this kind of moment when Revelation 4 and 5, everyone worshiping Jesus, worthy is the Lamb. And then in Revelation 6, it says the scrolls are open, but there's this verse I want to read to you. It talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, 16, it says, the people on earth who are going through this judgment said, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's interesting. God is on a point us to wrath. They called the wrath that was happening the wrath of the Lamb. Now, now here's all I want to get at. There's such a beautiful story of the Bible. Um, one of my favorite things is just how the Bible constantly, there's like little motifs or themes throughout scriptures that tie it together, and you kind of see the big picture of the Bible. So for example, this idea of the lamb is just constantly seen throughout the Bible. Just Jesus being the lamb of God, but the, we see the, the lamb just from like day one. We constantly see this idea of the lamb. Now here's what happens in Genesis 22, when Abraham and Isaac are going up to the mountain to make a sacrifice to God, Isaac asks this question because he realized there's no lamb. And he says, father, where is the lamb? Like, right? That'd be your question. 
God, we're about to make a sacrifice to God. I don't see a lamb. Where is the lamb? Can I tell you in Genesis 22, that is the question of the Old Testament. That is basically the whole Testament's about. Where is the lamb? Where's the Messiah? Where, where is the one that's going to absorb, absorb the wrath for me? Where's the one that's going to take on the wrath? Where's that sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And then in the New Testament, and John, you see him say, behold the lamb. See, the question of the Old Testament is, where is the lamb? The answer to the New Testament is, behold the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I love it because that question lingers throughout the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? And then Jesus comes on the scene and John's like, behold the lamb. Hey, Isaac, I see the lamb. And then you see in Revelation 4 or Revelation 5, just all of heaven worshiping Jesus. And what are they crying out? Worthy is the lamb. One of the major themes of the scriptures is, where's the lamb? Jesus comes on the scene, behold the lamb. In heaven, worthy is the lamb. And then what I don't throw in an RC often is Revelation 6, this day of the Lord, the wrath of the lamb. Meaning that God is going to bring justice. That God is going to enforce his kingdom. Here's what I'm trying to just bring out. God did not appoint us to this. God did not appoint us to this, unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus. Jesus was that lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus was that lamb that Isaac was talking about. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes with the sins of the world that John said, hey, this is the lamb. And you, you don't have to experience the wrath of the lamb because Jesus was the lamb. God does not want us to walk through this. He goes, he did not point us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus for those who believe in him for those who, who live for him. Even this phrase, actually, look at this, how he says it in verse 10. He goes, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Whether we're awake or dead, we might live with him. That this is the point. John actually said this in John 14, 8. He says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Either way, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. <laughs> whether we're living, we're the Lord's. We die, we're the Lord's. Doesn't matter. Either way, we're the Lord's. And he goes, either way, whether you're alive, you're asleep, you're the Lord's. You're with the Lord. You are the Lord's. You're his. Because Jesus, behold, is the lamb. He took on that wrath for you and for me. And this is what John says, comfort one another just as you're doing. Guys, here's what I'm going to do. We, we're going to take communion in a moment. And just stay with me. Communion is a way for us to say, Jesus, thank you for being the lamb of God who took the wrath for me. That God's righteous judgment was poured out on you, even though it should have been poured out on me. The communion reminds us that Jesus was that Passover lamb. On the Passover, he's saying, no, no, guys, this speaks of me. The blood on the doorposts, it's going to be blood on the cross. It's blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You know, this, this, this bread here, my body's going to be broken for you. And you see, here's John, this is Paul's heart for us. Paul's heart is saying, hey, listen, um, Jesus gave himself for us so he might deliver us from the wrath to come. This is what communion is saying, God, thank you for delivering us from the wrath to come. Listen, I just want to slow down a bit. I want to create more in this time just a heart of worship and a heart just to thank God. In this Advent season of remembering that he has come and he's coming, I just want to slow down and say, Jesus, thank you for being that lamb who absorbed the wrath of God for me. Thank you for being the lamb who took my sin, took my place, so that by your stripes, by your blood, we are healed. Thank you, Jesus. And this is what we're here to celebrate. So you should have hopefully got a little communion cup when you walked in. And here's what I'm saying. I'm just going to walk through this briefly. If you believe in Jesus, this is a time for us to celebrate and remember that the death and even the resurrection of Jesus, that he took on the wrath, he took on our sin, he took on all, all of the judgment of God was taken upon him on that cross. We say, thank you, Jesus. The idea of, of this just means to give thanks. We give thanks. Thank you, Jesus, that I've obtained salvation through you and what you've done for me, that you died so I could live. 
If you do not believe in Jesus, there's no need to take communion or take this at all, because why take something that you don't even believe in? But if you want to believe and say, Jesus, I do believe you are the, the, the Lamb of God that took my sins, then take, eat, and drink. Like, enjoy. This is just a time for us to reflect on Jesus' first coming and on his second coming, because what does Jesus say? He says, what? I will not eat and drink of this again until the kingdom. Communion is such a great time to remember his first coming and his second coming. Communion is a time to say, Jesus, thank you that you're not going to eat of the vine until you're with me, until I'm with you in the kingdom. That he says, I will not do this again until I'm with you. We remember his first coming, we remember his second coming. That salvation, listen, salvation has come, salvation's coming. Salvation has come in, in, in Jesus and the cross, but salvation's also ahead. Salvation is used in those kind of ways. Salvation has happened, salvation is happening, salvation will happen. This idea that God has justified me, he's sanctified me, he'll glorify me. And that's how it's referred to. So when we take communion, we say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. And thank you for what you will do. We remember that, Jesus, we have relationship and intimacy with you because you gave up your body and you shed your blood for us. And so I just want to worship. I want to turn this time into just a time of worship and celebration in this Advent season just to slow down and celebrate and remember the wrath of God who took on our sin, our, all of our grossness and injustices we've committed, all the things we've done. Jesus says, no, no, I, took that. I take that. I took that for you and I take that again and again. I want us to just slow down and just thank Jesus. So why don't we just pray for a second? We're going to worship. And I just want us to just enjoy the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time just to slow down, to take communion. God, to not just read 1 Thessalonians 5 as as just a Bible study, but Jesus, this is so beautiful that you've not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. God, I I just ask that right now for everyone who's sitting in these seats, holding on to this communion cup with this little cracker inside, that this would be a celebration, a, a time to give thanks, to say, Jesus, you took on that wrath. You absorbed it. And so, Jesus, as I take this, as it's absorbed into my body, I'm reminded of how you absorbed my sin, my, my flesh. And I just want to thank you now. So, God, I just ask that you would speak. This would be a time of worship, a time of praise, a time just to enjoy you, Father. We thank you again that we get to this just to celebrate, just to worship you, just to enjoy you. Just to say thank you, God, that you've not destined us for wrath. Thank you, God, that you've given us new life. Thank you, God, that your heart takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that you implore, you beg, turn and live. And that, Jesus, I ask everyone in this place would just do that if they have not yet. They would turn and live, turn and trust in you, turn and just believe on you, Jesus. And God, in this Advent season, we just want to say thank you for your arrival. Thank you that you've come and that you're coming again and that one day we'll take this communion cup with you in heaven. So we just want to say thank you, Jesus, in just your precious name. I just want to give you guys some time. We're going to worship, but why don't you just continue to pray, continue to seek the Lord, continue to thank God. If God moves it, puts it on your heart to pray with someone next to you, do it. This is just a time we just want to create to worship God, to honor him, to confess sin, to thank him. And so just take some time to take communion. When you're ready, you can eat and drink. I'll be up here doing the same thing as well. But let's just worship and let's just be still, quiet our hearts, and just reflect upon what Jesus has done for us through communion.